Uh, you know, a couple years ago, uh, my brother's family, they came down to visit. Um, they live in Texas, and so uh, they don't really come up very often, uh, but they were able to come up with their family. Uh, my brother has two kids. Uh, I have a niece and a nephew uh, there. And uh, we were just hanging out, and for lunch, uh, we went to go eat, right? It was Kom Shabu Shabu in Centerville. It was one of, you know, it's one of my favorite places. Uh, and when we finished eating, we had a good time. We all came out of the restaurant, and uh, Ada, who's our niece, she, like, runs out first. And she immediately starts to run into the street, right? Just like the, there's a street area right there. And all I remember is my brother yelled like crazy. He was, Ada, stop, right? Immediately, I felt like the hair in the back of my head started to tingle because I started, I started to have flashbacks of like when I was younger <laughs> when he would yell at me, right? But he, would, he was like, stop. And immediately she stopped. And she, he said, get back here right now. And she like walks over. She starts to, she's crying, right? Because she knows she's in trouble. And she's crying. And, and he, bends, he bends down. He like grabs her by the arms and goes, Ada, I told you, don't ever run into the street without looking. I told you that. Didn't I tell you? And she's like, she's like crying, right? And like for me, I'm like side glancing, like, I'm like what am I doing? Like, am I supposed to like kind of, I don't know like the social etiquette here. I'm like, okay. Um, but as I was like looking at that, it was, it was really interesting to see the kind of my brother disciplining uh, his daughter uh, in that moment. Um, because I think if, if you're a parent, uh, I'm sure that many of you have had a similar experience. When you see your child walking into the street, when you see your child about to touch something really hot, if you see your child about to go into something very dangerous and they don't realize it, a parent's immediate response is to grab their child, is to discipline them, saying, no, don't do that. Don't go there. That's wrong. You see, it's not because a parent hates their child. Of course not. It's the opposite. It's because they love them so much that they're willing to say those things. You see, church, this is how Jesus views the church of Laodicea. I think that when we read this type of passage, it's such a famous passage. I'm sure some of you, even if you haven't been going to church for a long time, have heard of this passage. I, I'm going to spit you out. You are lukewarm. You are neither hot nor cold. We've, we've heard this before. These are some of the harshest words that anyone can hear, that any church can hear, especially from Jesus. And we read this and we say, man, this church is, is, man, is trash. This church is so, man, Jesus hates this church. But I want you to realize that Jesus is only saying these things to this church. He's only saying these things to these different churches simply because he loves them so much. He's disciplining them because he cares about them. And that's what we have to realize about all of these different churches. It's because he cares. It's because he loves that he's willing to rebuke, that he's willing to yell, that he's willing to stand his ground and say, look, what you're doing is wrong. You see, he's yelling at them in the same way a parent would yell at their child when they're about to walk out into the street. And we see this because in, in verse 19, Jesus, he says, he says, those whom I love, 
I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. He says, because I love you, because I care about you, I will discipline you. And I hope that this gives us hope as well. Because within this passage, what you're going to realize is that there's no praise. A lot of the other, a lot of the other churches, there's at least one thing, there's, there's one remnant, there's one group that is still being faithful to the Lord. There's still one thing that Jesus can point out and say, look, you're doing this thing well. At least you're doing this thing. Okay. But, but I want to discipline you for this. No, for this church, he says, there's nothing you're doing right. There's nothing you're doing good. Everything is messed up here. And yet here he tells them, I still love you. I want you to come back to me. I still want you to be with me. This church, it wasn't too late for them. Even though they had gone off into the deep end, even though they had gone off so far, it wasn't too late for them. Church, I want to just encourage you about this as well. It's not too late for any one person. No matter how far away you have strayed from the Lord, no matter how far away you have strayed from good wisdom or from what the, what, what the Lord has been t- telling you for a long time, from what you have been praying, from, from what you believe God has told you from before, no matter how far you have gone in the other direction from that, it is never too late. It is not too late for you to turn back to the Lord. You see, for this church of Laodicea, what we're going to do is look at just three things. Three things. The first is the context of the church. Second is the condemnation of the church. And third is the command for the church. Right? Now, the first thing we want to look at is the context. Now, I know that we've gone through the context a couple times through different churches, but this one in particular is pretty important because uh, if you know the context of what is happening in this city, then you're going to understand why Jesus says the words that he's saying. Because a lot of the words that he says here, he's trying to make it contextualized and he's trying to make it relevant to this particular church. And so I want you to understand uh, the context and the background of this church so that you have a deeper understanding of what Jesus is trying to say. Okay? Now there are three things about uh, the church of Laodicea uh, that set it apart from other cities. Uh, the first thing, and one of the most important ones, uh, is that uh, this city was very wealthy. And the re- one of the main reasons why this city in particular was so wealthy was because it was known for breeding a type of sheep that produced black wool. And that was very unique to this city. And what they would do is that they would produce black wool, and this black wool, because it was a lot more rare, they would end up using it for really expensive coats and really expensive rugs. And so people would come in from all over the place to, get, uh, to buy this and to sell it and all of that stuff. And so the city by itself would become very wealthy simply from trading and producing this black wool. In fact, Laodicea was so wealthy that in 60 AD, uh, there was an earthquake that happened. And this earthquake ended up uh, destroying most of the city. It was a really, really bad earthquake. And it was to the point where Rome 
uh, and the officials and the emperor there actually said, uh, we are going, we will give you financial support in order to build back your city. But the Laodicean officials, they wrote back to Rome and they said, stop, we don't want your financial support. We have enough money of our own. We're going to build it better than it was before. And so they rejected the money from Rome and they decided to use the bank that they had produced the money that they had, and they ended up building up uh, their own city in a better way. You see, the people of Laodicea, they prided themselves on being financially self-sufficient. Now, the second characteristic of Laodicea that set it apart was its medical school. Now, in the city, there was this huge temple dedicated to Aesculapius, who is the Greek god of healing. Some of you uh, probably, even if you've never heard of that name, you've probably recognized his symbol, which is a staff with a serpent intertwined uh, on it. Now, Laodicea wasn't unique in that it had a medical school. There were a lot of other cities that had medical schools. Uh, But what set Laodicea apart was that in its medical school, it had developed a certain type of eye ointment or an eye solve kind of thing uh, that would heal uh, eye diseases. And so this city, this medical school, was really famous for this eye ointment, right? So that was the second characteristic. Now, the last one I want to mention to you guys was that Laodicea, its water supply was very unique. And it was unique because Despite its wealth, Laodicea did not have a fresh source of water. It didn't have a big lake or stream next to it that it could get water from. There, there were some small streams that were near, but as it continued to grow, uh, it, it, the, those streams ended up drying up. And so what ended up happening was that it had to bring in water from different places, and so they made, a, they made an underground aqueduct or underground pipe system. And they would uh, bring in water from two specific places. The first one was uh, a place called Heropolis. And they had, Heropolis was famous for hot springs. And so they would bring in this really hot water uh, from Heropolis. And the second place was from Colossea. And they were no, Colossea was known for very cold water. And so it would bring in cold water from that area. Now, however, the problem was is that those pipes just weren't well made, right? I mean, back then, you just, they just didn't have the technology that we have now. And they were miles away. And so the hot water, it would come in from far away from Heropolis. But by the time it entered into Laodicea, it would turn lukewarm. On the flip side, from Colossea, the cold water, really, really refreshing, really good cold water, would come in through the pipes, but by the time it finally reached the city, it would also turn lukewarm. Not only that, because the pipes were made out of stone, there would be calcium deposits that would occur within the pipes, and it would be too hard to change them frequently, so these calcium deposits would turn to start to make the water almost undrinkable. It would make it impure. And it would become very, very difficult for the Laodicean people to drink. So this is the context of this city, okay? Now, let's get into the passage. 
And one of the first things Jesus says is the condemnation. There's no praise involved. There's nothing good that he says before. He just goes straight into the warning. Verse 15 to 16, it says this. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. With that, you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus is saying here, I know your works. And I know that you are neither hot nor cold. And because you are lukewarm, I am going to spit you out of my mouth. Another way that you can say that, they said it really nicely here. Another way you can say that is, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. You know, a small footnote before we go into the condemnation here. What Jesus is saying is really important. He's saying our actions are important. Jesus knows uh, our faith by our works, right? It's not that our works uh, means that we have faith, but if we have faith, then our works will show it. I think this makes sense. Our, our actions speak louder than words. We know that. As much as a spouse or a husband can say that they love and care for their wife, if they're mistreating their wife, if you can see that they're treating them so badly, then you know that their words are a lie. In the same way, when you think about Christianity and when you think about Christians, anyone can say that they believe in Jesus Christ. Anyone can say that they believe in the Bible. But the question is, do your actions reflect that? Do your deeds really show that those things are true, that you really follow after the Lord, that you desire to know him and be close to him? And so the condemnation here that Jesus is saying is, I know you by your works. And because you are lukewarm, what's going to happen is I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. What we're seeing here is that Jesus is explaining something. And he's telling the church of Laodicea that it is better to be spiritually cold than to be in the middle. It's better to be spiritually on fire than to be in the middle. Now, what does it mean to be spiritually cold? Well, what being spiritually cold means is that these are people who may not believe in Jesus Christ and who may reject him outright, but they don't have any pretense. They're not trying to fake things. They're not trying to act a certain way. They, they don't believe in Jesus Christ, and, and that's just who they are. And that they, are, they say that out loud. There's nothing hypocritical about what they believe or the way that they live their life. If they, they are from the world, and so they say they're from the world, and that's the way that they live. Now, on the flip side, people who are spiritually hot are those who desire to know the Lord and are passionate about him. You see, what Jesus is saying is that it's better to be from the hot springs of Heropolis or from the cold streams of Colossae, but those who are lukewarm are those people 
who go to church, claim that they're Christians, but don't really care about Christ. Those are the people who say that they believe in the Lord, who say that they love Jesus Christ, and yet their actions are completely the opposite of it. Those are the people who say that they're Christians, and yet because their actions are so opposite of what the Bible says, it confuses and detracts other non-Christians from ever following after Christ. Those are the people that Jesus Christ is talking to and saying, look, you need to change. I want you to either be for me or against me, but what you're doing is leading people astray, and because of that, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. These are the people that Jesus is trying to grab on by the arms and saying, look, wake up. Wake up, what you're doing is dangerous. And what's frightening is that these are people who aren't saved, but they don't realize it. They believe that they're Christians. And this was the church of Laodicea. You see, when we read this passage, we find out something really important. And it's that their lukewarm spiritual life was a result of a deeper sin issue. And that deeper sin issue was something called self-sufficiency. Verse 17, it says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, remember the story uh, of the earthquake that I told you before uh, about them trying to, you know, rejecting all the help from Rome because they were self-sufficient in that way. You see, that idea of financial self-sufficiency was so powerful within that city that it ended up infiltrating into the church. And I want to let you guys know that wanting to be independent, wanting to be Uh, sufficient in a way and wanting to make it on your own is not a bad thing. Those are good. That's like the American dream, right? I mean, that's what our parents, whatever, that's like what people go through. Those are good things. But here, what's happened is that the church has bought into the idea of self-sufficiency so much that they're more willing to trust in themselves than in Jesus Christ. It's a good thing to be entrepreneurial, It's a good thing to want to be independent. Before this church, what the issue was, was that they had a pride issue. They had a a sin of pride, where they were more willing to rely upon themselves and upon what they could produce, upon what they could do, more more than Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying, look, because you're unwilling to trust in anything, including me, we don't have any type of relationship. You say that you're a Christian, But what's the first characteristic of Christianity? It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And yet for them, they have no relationship whatsoever because for them, their Lord wasn't Jesus, it was themselves. And that was the problem. You see, this church didn't even realize that they were doing this. And that's why Jesus says, you think that you're rich, you think that you're well off, but you're actually poor, blind, and naked. This church is walking into the street with a bunch of cars without any idea, thinking that everything is fine. But their pride is blinding them to the fact that even if you say that you're Christian, 
If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then look, you're just fooling yourself. And Jesus is telling them, it's better for you to either be on fire for me or it's better for you to reject me outright than to live the way that you are living. And so what Jesus does is he gives a command. And that that command is in verse 18. It says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Do you see how Jesus uses this city's context? What he's saying is, look, you have prided yourself in your black wool. You have prided yourself in your riches. You have prided yourself in being able to heal other people in their blindness. But guess what? Spiritually, you are naked. Spiritually, you are poor. Spiritually, you are blind. So you need to repent and you need to turn back. And I know that for this church, when they heard this word, it could have, I mean, it must have really shocked them. I can't imagine what it would have been like if, if, you know, somehow we heard this voice from the Lord for our church. I know that it would, it would completely, I don't know, wipe us, right? But I want you to know, here's how good our Lord is. Because even though they were lukewarm, and even though they were self-sufficient in themselves, Jesus, he gives them an invitation. He says, look, it's not too late for you. It's not too late for this church, and it's not too late for us. Because what he's saying here, he says, look, what you need to do is buy from me. Now, that's a strange thing to hear, right? He says, I need you to buy from me. Well, verse 18, what does it say? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Now, when we read that, it, it sounds kind of strange, right? What, what does Jesus really mean when he says buying from him? Well, when Jesus says that, for the people who read it, they would think of this uh, image or think of this verse from Isaiah 55, 1, and it says where God is talking to the people who don't know him, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Now, Jesus is telling them, I want you to come to me and buy from me things that you need. Buy water from me. Buy food from me, and I will feed you. The question is, how are we going to buy from him? Well, the only thing that we can give to him is our own sinful condition. The only thing that we can give to Jesus, the only thing that we have is ourselves. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, if you give me yourself, if you give me all of you, then look, I'm going to give you everything. And there's two things specifically that he tells us he's going to give us. First is gold refined by fire. Now, what gold refined by fire, when you read a lot of the the rest of the Bible, what you're going to see are verses that talk about this. And what he's saying is it's a true type of faith. He's saying, look, I'm going to give you a faith that endures. I'm going to give you a faith that lasts over time. 
I'm going to give you a faith that doesn't go back and forth. I'm going to give you this type of faith that truly believes and trusts in me and that you will see me in heaven with. That's the type of faith. The second thing that he gives us is ointment for our eyes. See, back then when people would get that eye ointment or that eye salve, they would put it in some dough and place it on the eyes of the person who was sick, right? And after a couple of days, what would happen is that this ointment, it would bring healing and restoration. So this city was known as really a city of healing, a city of restoration. And Jesus, what he's doing is he's telling that church the exact same thing that this church or this city would tell other people. He's saying, when you come to me, I'm the one who's going to give you healing. I'm the one that will give you restoration. Because for these people here, what you have to realize is that some of them were so tired. Some of them were striving again and again. Some of them were far away from the Lord. And what we know is that the further away you get from the Lord, the more tired and the more hurt you get, and the more, the more you just want to give up. Church, don't you want restoration? Don't you want healing? For a lot of us, we look for it in so many other places, whether that's in our relationships with our boyfriend or girlfriends, whether that's in our children, whether that's in our spouse, whether that's in our career, whether that's in our academics. We try to find that in so many other places, but when those things fail, we have to start again from square one. And that cycle continues again and again, and we get so tired from it. Aren't you tired of that, church? Well, here's the thing. Jesus is telling you, I can bring healing. I can bring that restoration you're looking for. He promises that. It says that here. I will give you ointment for your eyes. That thing that you have been looking for, I will give you. Jesus is calling that out to you today. And he desires to give you healing. You see, in verse 20, Jesus says something that I think a lot of us have probably heard before. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. What he's saying here is he's standing at the door of your heart and he's knocking. And he's asking for a relationship with you. He promises that he will bring healing. He promises that he will bring restoration. He's promising these different things to you, and yet what he is going to do is he's not going to force himself in. He is going to knock at the door of your heart, and he's going to be asked to be let in. There was this painting back uh, years ago uh, by, this name, uh, by this man named Warner Solomon, and, and he illustrates this verse. I think many of, you guys, many of you guys have probably seen it before. It's a picture of Jesus, and he's standing by this wooden door. But what you would realize if you look closely at this painting is that this wooden door doesn't have a door handle. It's just a, it's just a flat door. Because what he's trying to portray is what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not going to force himself into your life. He's going to knock at the door of your heart. He's going to proclaim these promises that he will do within your life. He says he will give to you all of these things, but the question is, will you accept his invitation? Will you believe in what he's saying to you today? Will you let go of the kingship of your own heart, 
And will you allow Jesus Christ to be king over your life? Church, if you do that, God promises two things. He will give you a true and lasting faith that will endure through the ages, that will not topple with anything upon this earth, that will not topple with any difficulty or hardship you face. And the second thing that he promises is healing and restoration. He will lift your burdens. Those things that you have been carrying, the reason you are tired is because you were not meant to carry them. Jesus says that he will carry them for us. And so brothers and sisters, my church, I pray and I hope that you would really believe this, that you would accept this invitation for Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart and he's asking you to be let in. Amen. Let's pray.